The Vicar of Wakefield by Oliver Goldsmith, read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton. Chapter Twenty One, the short continuance of friendship among the vicious, which is coeval only with mutual satisfaction. My son's account was too long to be delivered at once. The first part of it was begun that night, and he was concluding the rest after dinner the next day. When the appearance of Mr. Thornhill's equipage at the door seemed to make a pause in the general satisfaction, the butler, who was now become my friend in the family, informed me with a whisper that the squire had already made some overtures to Miss Wilmot, and that her aunt and uncle seemed highly to approve the match. Upon Mr. Thornhill's entering, he seemed, at seeing my son and me, to start back, but I readily imputed that to surprise and not displeasure. However, upon our advancing to salute him, he returned our greeting with the most apparent candour, and after a short time his presence served only to increase the general good humour. After tea he called me aside to inquire after my daughter, but upon my informing him that my inquiry was unsuccessful, he seemed greatly surprised, adding that he had been since frequently at my house in order to comfort the rest of my family, whom he left perfectly well. He then asked if I had communicated her misfortune to Miss Wilmot or my son, and upon my replying that I had not told them as yet, he greatly approved my prudence and precaution, desiring me by all means to keep it a secret. For at best, cried he, it is but divulging one's own infamy, and perhaps Miss Livy may not be so guilty as we all imagine. We were here interrupted by a servant who came to ask the squire in to stand up at country dances, so that he left me quite pleased with the interest he seemed to take in my concerns. His addresses, however, to Miss Wilmot were too obvious to be mistaken, and yet she seemed not perfectly pleased, but bore them rather in compliance to the will of her aunt than from real inclination. I had even the satisfaction to see her lavish some kind looks upon my unfortunate son which the other could neither extort by his fortune nor assiduity. Mr. Thornhill's seeming composure, however, not a little surprised me. We had now continued here a week at the pressing instances of Mr. Arnold, but each day the more tenderness Miss Wilmot showed my son, Mr. Thornhill's friendship seemed proportionably to increase for him. He had formerly made us the most kind assurances of using his interest to serve the family, but now his generosity was not confined to promises alone. The morning I designed for my departure, Mr. Thornhill came to me with looks of real pleasure, to inform me of a piece of service he had done for his friend George. This was nothing less than his having procured him an ensign's commission in one of the regiments that was going to the West Indies, for which he had promised but one hundred pounds his interest having been sufficient to get an abatement of the other two. As for this trifling piece of service, continued the young gentleman, I desire no other reward but the pleasure of having served my friend. And as for the hundred pounds to be paid, if you are unable to raise it yourselves, I will advance it, and you shall repay me at your leisure. This was a favour we wanted words to express our sense of. I readily, therefore, gave my bond for the money, and testified as much gratitude as if I never intended to pay. George was to depart for town the next day to secure his commission, in pursuance of his generous patron's directions, who judged it highly expedient to use dispatch, lest in the meantime another should step in with more advantageous proposals. 
The next morning, therefore, our young soldier was early prepared for his departure, and seemed the only person among us that was not affected by it. Neither the fatigues and dangers he was going to encounter, nor the friends and mistress, for Miss Wilmot actually loved him, he was leaving behind, anyway dampened his spirits. After he had taken leave of the rest of the company, I gave him all I had, my blessing. And now, my boy, cried I, thou art going to fight for thy country. Remember how thy brave grandfather fought for his sacred king, when loyalty among Britons was a virtue. Go, my boy, and imitate him in all but his misfortunes, if it was a misfortune to die with Lord Falkland. Go, my boy, and if you fall, though distant, exposed, and unwept by those that love you, the most precious tears are those with which heaven bedews the unburied head of a soldier. The next morning I took leave of the good family that had been kind enough to entertain me so long, not without several expressions of gratitude to Mr. Thornhill for his late bounty. I left them in the enjoyment of all that happiness which affluence and good breeding procure, and returned towards home, despairing of ever finding my daughter more, but sending a sigh to heaven to spare and to forgive her. I was now come within about twenty miles of home, having hired an horse to carry me, as I was yet but weak, and comforted myself with the hopes of soon seeing all I held dearest upon earth. But the night coming on, I put up at a little public-house by the roadside, and asked for the landlord's company over a pint of wine. We sat beside his kitchen-fire, which was the best room in the house, and chatted on politics and the news of the country. We happened, among other topics, to talk of young Squire Thornhill, who, the host assured me, was hated as much as his uncle Sir William, who sometimes came down to the country, was loved. He went on to observe that he made it his whole study to betray the daughters of such as received him to their houses, and, after a fortnight or three weeks' possession, turned them out unrewarded and abandoned to the world. As we continued our discourse in this manner, his wife, who had been out to get change, returned, and, perceiving that her husband was enjoying a pleasure in which she was not a sharer, she asked him in an angry tone what he did there to which he only replied in an ironical way by drinking her health. "'Mr. Simmons,' cried she, "'you use me very ill, and I'll bear it no longer. Here three parts of business is left for me to do, and the fourth left unfinished, while you do nothing but soak with the guests all day long. Whereas if a spoonful of liquor were to cure me of a fever, I never touch a drop.' I now found what she would be at and immediately poured her out a glass, which she received with a curtsey, and drinking towards my good health. Sir, resumed she, it is not so much for the value of the liquor I am angry, but one cannot help it when the house is going out of the windows. If the customers or guests are to be dunned, all the burden lies upon my back. He'd as lief eat that glass as budge after them himself. There now, above stairs, we have a young woman who's come to take her lodgings here and I don't believe she's got any money by her over-civility. I am certain she is very slow of payment, and I wish she were put in mind of it. What signifies minding her, cried the host, if she be slow, she is sure. I don't know that, replied the wife, but I know that I am sure she has been here a fortnight, and we have not yet seen the cross of her money. I suppose, my dear, cried he, we shall have it all in a lump 
in a lump, cried the other. I hope we may get it anyway, and that I am resolved we will this very night, or out she tramps bag and baggage. Consider, my dear, cried the husband, she is a gentlewoman and deserves more respect. As for the matter of that, returned the hostess, gentle or simple, out she shall pack with a sassarara. Gentry may be good things where they take, but for my part I never saw much good of them at the sign of the harrow. Thus saying, she ran up a narrow flight of stairs that went from the kitchen to a room overhead, and I soon perceived, by the loudness of her voice and the bitterness of her reproaches, that no money was to be had from her lodger. I could hear her remonstrances very distinctly. Out, I say, pack out this moment, tramp, thou infamous strumpet, or I'll give thee a mark, thou won't be the better for this three months. What, you trumpery, to come and take up an honest house without cross or coin to bless yourself with? Come along, I say. Oh, dear madam, cried the stranger, pity me, pity a poor abandoned creature for one night, and death will soon do the rest. I instantly knew the voice of my poor ruined child Olivia. I flew to her rescue while the woman was dragging her along by the hair, and I caught the dear forlorn wretch in my arms. Welcome, anyway, welcome, my dearest lost one, my treasure, to your poor old father's bosom. Though the vicious forsake thee, there is yet one in the world that will never forsake thee. Though thou hadst ten thousand crimes to answer for, he will forget them all. Oh, my own dear! For minutes she could no more. My own dearest good papa, could angels be kinder? How do I deserve so much? The villain, I hate him and myself, to be a reproach to such goodness. You can't forgive me, I know you cannot. Yes, my child, from my heart I do forgive thee. Only repent, and we both shall yet be happy. We shall see many pleasant days yet, my Olivia. Ah, oh, never, sir, never, the rest of my wretched life must be infamy abroad and shame at home. But alas, papa, you look much paler than you used to do. Could such a thing as I am give you so much uneasiness? Sure you have too much wisdom to take the miseries of my guilt upon yourself. Ah, wisdom, young woman, replied I. Ah, oh, why so cold a name, papa, cried she. This is the first time you ever called me by so cold a name. I ask pardon, my darling, returned I, but I was going to observe that wisdom makes but a slow defence against trouble, though at last a sure one. The landlady now returned to know if we did not choose a more genteel apartment, to which, assenting, we were shown a room where we could converse more freely. After we had talked ourselves into some degree of tranquillity, I could not avoid desiring some account of the gradations that led to her present wretched situation. That villain, sir, said she, from the first day of our meeting, made me honourable, though private, proposals. Villain, indeed, cried I, and yet it in some measure surprises me, how a person of Mr. Burchill's good sense and seeming honour could be guilty of such deliberate baseness, and thus step into a family to undo it. My dear papa, returned my daughter, you labour under a strange mistake. Mr. Burchill never attempted to deceive me. Instead of that, he took every opportunity of privately admonishing me against the artifices of Mr. Thornhill, who I now find was even worse than he represented him. Mr. Thornhill, interrupted I, can it be? Yes, sir, returned she, it was Mr. Thornhill who seduced me, who employed the two ladies, as he called them, but who, in fact, were abandoned women of the town, without breeding or pity, to decoy us up to London. 
Their artifices, you remember, would have certainly succeeded, but for Mr. Birchall's letter, who directed those reproaches at them, which we all applied to ourselves. How he came to have so much influence as to defeat their intentions still remains a secret to me, but I am convinced he was ever our warmest, sincerest friend. "'You amaze me, my dear,' cried I. "'But now I find my first suspicions of Mr. Thornhill's baseness were too well grounded.' but he can triumph in security, for he is rich and we are poor. But tell me, my child, surely it was no small temptation that could thus obliterate all the impressions of such an education and so virtuous a disposition as thine. Indeed, sir, replied she, he owes all his triumph to the desire I had of making him and not myself happy. I knew that the ceremony of our marriage, which was privately performed by a popish priest, was no way binding and that I had nothing to trust to but his honour. What? interrupted I. And were you indeed married by a priest, and in orders? Indeed, sir, we were, replied she, though we were both sworn to conceal his name. Why, then, my child, come to my arms again, and now you are a thousand times more welcome than before, for you are now his wife, to all intents and purposes, nor can all the laws of man, though written upon tables of adamant, lessen the force of that sacred connection. "'Alas, papa,' replied she, "'you are but little acquainted with his villainies. "'He has been married already by the same priest "'to six or eight wives more, "'whom, like me, he has deceived and abandoned.' "'Has he so?' cried I. "'Then we must hang the priest, "'and you shall inform against him to-morrow.' "'But, sir,' returned she, "'will that be right when I am sworn to secrecy?' "'My dear,' I replied, "'if you have made such a promise,' I cannot, nor will I tempt you, to break it. Even though it may benefit the public, you must not inform against him. In all human institutions a smaller evil is allowed to procure a greater good. As in politics a province may be given away to secure a kingdom, in medicine a limb may be lopped off to preserve the body, but in religion the law is written and inflexible never to do evil. And this law, my child, is right or otherwise, if we commit a smaller evil, to procure a greater good, certain guilt would thus be incurred, in expectation of contingent advantage. And though the advantage should certainly follow, yet the interval between commission and advantage, which is allowed to be guilty, may be that in which we are called away to answer for the things we have done, and the volume of human actions is closed for ever. But I interrupt you, my dear. Go on. The very next morning, continued she, I found what little expectations I was to have from his sincerity. That very morning he introduced me to two unhappy women more, whom, like me, he had deceived, but who lived in contented prostitution. I loved him too tenderly to bear such rivals in his affections, and strove to forget my infamy in a tumult of pleasures. With this view I danced, dressed, and talked, but still was unhappy. The gentleman who visited there told me every moment of the power of my charms, and this only contributed to increase my melancholy, as I had thrown all their power quite away. Thus each day I grew more pensive, and he more insolent, till at last the monster had the assurance to offer me to a young baronet of his acquaintance. Need I describe, sir, how this ingratitude stung me? My answer to his proposal was almost madness. I desired to part. As I was going, he offered me a purse, but I flung it at him with indignation, 
and burst from him in a rage that for a while kept me insensible to the miseries of my situation. But I soon looked round me, and saw myself a vile, abject, guilty thing, without one friend in the world to apply to. Just in that interval a stage-coach happening to pass by, I took a place, it being my only aim to be driven at a distance from a wretch I despised and detested. I was set down here, where, since my arrival, my own anxiety and this woman's unkindness had been my only companions. The hours of pleasure that I have passed with my mamma and sister now grow painful to me. Their sorrows are much, but mine is greater than theirs, for mine are mixed with guilt and infamy. Have patience, my child, cried I, and I hope things will yet be better. Take some repose to-night, and to-morrow I'll carry you home to your mother and the rest of the family, from whom you will receive a kind reception. Poor woman, this has gone to her heart, but she loves you still, Olivia, and will forget it. End of chapter The Vicar of Wakefield by Oliver Goldsmith Read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton Chapter 22 Offences are easily pardoned when there is love at bottom. The next morning I took my daughter behind me and set out on my return home. As we travelled along I strove by ever persuasion to calm her sorrows and fears, and to arm her with resolution to bear the presence of her offended mother. I took every opportunity, from the prospect of a fine country, through which we passed, to observe how much kinder heaven was to us than we to each other, and that misfortunes of nature's making were very few. I assured her that she should never perceive any change in my affections, and that during my life, which yet might be long, she might depend upon a guardian and an instructor. I armed her against the censures of the world, showed her that books were sweet, unreproaching companions to the miserable, and that if they could not bring us to enjoy life, they would at least teach us to endure it. The hired horse that we rode was to be put up that night at an inn by the way, within about five miles from my house, and as I was willing to prepare my family for my daughter's reception, I determined to leave her that night at the inn, and to return for her, accompanied by my daughter Sophia, early the next morning. It was night before we reached our appointed stage. However, after seeing her provided with a decent apartment, and having ordered the hostess to prepare proper refreshments, I kissed her and proceeded towards home. And now my heart caught new sensations of pleasure the near I approached that peaceful mansion. As a bird that had been frightened from its nest, my affections outwent my haste, and hovered round my little fireside with all the rapture of expectation. I called up the many fond things I had to say, and anticipated the welcome I was to receive. I already felt my wife's tender embrace, and smiled at the joy of my little ones. As I walked but slowly, the night waned apace. The labourers of the day were all retired to rest, the lights were out in every cottage, no sounds were heard but of the shrilling cock and the deep-mouthed watchdog at hollow distance. I approached my little abode of pleasure, and before I was within a furlong of the place, our honest mastiff came running to welcome me. It was now near midnight that I came to knock at my door. All was still and silent. 
my heart dilated with unutterable happiness, when, to my amazement, I saw the house bursting out in a blaze of fire, and every aperture red with conflagration. I gave a loud, convulsive outcry, and fell upon the pavement insensible. This alarmed my son, who had till this been asleep, and he, perceiving the flames, instantly waked my wife and daughter, and all running out, naked and wild with apprehension, recalled me to life with their anguish. But it was only to objects of new terror, for the flames had, by this time, caught the roof of our dwelling, part after part continuing to fall in, while the family stood with silent agony looking on, as if they enjoyed the blaze. I gazed upon them, and upon it, by turns, and then looked round me for my two little ones. But they were not to be seen. "'Oh, misery! Where?' cried I. "'Where are my little ones?' "'They are burnt to death in the flames,' says my wife calmly, "'and I will die with them.' That moment I heard the cry of the babes within, who were just awakened by the fire, and nothing could have stopped me. "'Where? Where are my children?' cried I, rushing through the flames, and bursting the door of the chamber in which they were confined. "'Where are my little ones?' "'Here, dear papa, here we are,' cried they together, while the flames were just catching the bed where they lay. I caught them both in my arms, and snatched them through the fire as fast as possible, while just as I was got out, the roof sunk in. "'Now,' cried I, holding up my children, "'now let the flames burn on, and all my possessions perish. Here they are, I have saved my treasure. Here, my dearest, here are our treasures, and we shall yet be happy.' We kissed our little darlings a thousand times, they clasped us round the neck, and seemed to share our transports, while their mother laughed and wept by turns. I now stood a calm spectator of the flames, and after some time began to perceive that my arm to the shoulder was scorched in a terrible manner. It was therefore out of my power to give my son any assistance, either in attempting to save our goods, or preventing the flames spreading to our corn. By this time the neighbours were alarmed and came running to our assistance. But all they could do was to stand like us spectators of the calamity. My goods, among which were the notes I had reserved for my daughter's fortunes, were entirely consumed, except a box with some papers that stood in the kitchen, and two or three things more of little consequence, which my son brought away in the beginning. The neighbours contributed, however, what they could to lighten our distress. They brought us clothes, and furnished one of our outhouses with kitchen utensils, so that by daylight we had another, though a wretched dwelling, to retire to. My honest neighbour and his children were not the least assiduous in providing us with everything necessary, and offering whatever consolation untutored benevolence could suggest. When the fears of my family had subsided, curiosity to know the cause of my long stay began to take place. Having therefore informed them of every particular, I proceeded to prepare them for the reception of our lost one, and though we had nothing but wretchedness now to impart, I was willing to procure her a welcome to what we had. This task would have been more difficult but for our recent calamity, which had humbled my wife's pride and blunted it by more poignant afflictions. Being unable to go for my poor child myself, as my arm grew very painful, I sent my son and daughter, who soon returned, supporting the wretched delinquent, who had not the courage to look up at her mother, whom no instructions of mine could persuade to a perfect reconciliation. For women have a much stronger sense of female error than men. "'Ah, madam,' cried her mother, "'this is but a poor place you are come to after so much finery. 
My daughter Sophie and I can afford but little entertainment to persons who have kept company only with people of distinction. Yes, Miss Livy, your poor father and I have suffered very much of late, but I hope heaven will forgive you. During this reception the unhappy victim stood pale and trembling, unable to weep or to reply, but I could not continue a silent spectator of her distress, wherefore assuming a degree of severity in my voice and manner which was ever followed with instant submission. I entreat, woman, that my words may be now marked once for all. I have here brought you back a poor, deluded wanderer. Her return to duty demands the revival of our tenderness. The real hardships of life are now coming fast upon us. Let us not therefore increase them by dissension among each other. If we live harmoniously together, we may yet be contented, and there are enough of us to shut out the censuring world and keep each other in countenance. The kindness of heaven is promised to the penitent, and let ours be directed by the example. Heaven, we are assured, is much more pleased to view a repentant sinner than ninety-nine persons who have supported a course of undeviating rectitude. And this is right, for that single effort by which we stop short in the downhill path to perdition is itself a greater exertion of virtue than an hundred acts of justice. End of chapter The Vicar of Wakefield by Oliver Goldsmith Read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton Chapter 23 None but the guilty can be long and completely miserable Some assiduity was now required to make our present abode as convenient as possible, and we were soon again qualified to enjoy our former serenity. Being disabled myself from assisting my son in our usual occupations, I read to my family from the few books that were saved, and particularly from such as, by amusing the imagination, contribute to ease the heart. Our good neighbours, too, came every day with the kindest condolence, and fixed a time in which they were all to assist repairing my former dwelling. Honest Father Williams was not last among these visitors, but heartily offered his friendship. He would even have renewed his addresses to my daughter, but she rejected them in such a manner as totally repressed his future solicitations. Her grief seemed formed for continuing, and she was the only person of our little society that a week did not restore to cheerfulness. She now lost that unblushing innocence which once taught her to respect herself and to seek pleasure by pleasing. Anxiety now had taken strong possession of her mind, her beauty began to be impaired with her constitution, and neglect still more contributed to diminish it. Every tender epithet bestowed on her sister brought a pang to her heart and a tear to her eye. And, as one vice, though cured, ever plants others where it has been, so her former guilt, though driven out by repentance, left jealousy and envy behind. I strove a thousand ways to lessen her care and ever forgot my own pain in a concern for hers, collecting such amusing passages of history as a strong memory and some reading could suggest. Our happiness, my dear, I would say, is in the power of one who can bring it about a thousand unforeseen ways that mock our foresight. If example be necessary to prove this, I'll give you a story, my child, told us by a grave, though sometimes a romancing, historian. 
Matilda was married very young to a Neapolitan nobleman of the first quality, and found herself a widow and a mother at the age of fifteen. As she stood one day caressing her infant son in the open window of an apartment which hung over the river Volturna, the child, with a sudden spring, leapt from her arms into the flood below, and disappeared in a moment. The mother, struck with instant surprise, and making all effort to save him, plunged in after. But, far from being able to assist the infant, she herself, with great difficulty, escaped to the opposite shore, just when some French soldiers were plundering the country on that side, who immediately made her their prisoner. As the war was then carried on between the French and the Italians with the utmost inhumanity, they were going at once to perpetrate those two extremes suggested by appetite and cruelty. This base resolution, however, was opposed by a young officer, who, though their retreat required the utmost expedition, placed her behind him, and brought her in safety to his native city. Her beauty at first caught his eye, her merit soon after his heart. They were married, he rose to the highest posts, they lived together and were happy. But the felicity of a soldier can never be called permanent. After an interval of several years, the troops which he commanded having met with a repulse, he was obliged to take shelter in the city where he had lived with his wife. Here they suffered a siege, and the city at length was taken. Few histories can produce more various instances of cruelty than those which the French and Italians at that time exercised upon each other. It was resolved by the victors upon this occasion to put all the French prisoners to death, but particularly the husband of the unfortunate Matilda, as he was principally instrumental in protracting the siege. Their determinations were, in general, executed almost as soon as resolved upon. The captive soldier was led forth, and the executioner with his sword stood ready, while the spectators in gloomy silence awaited the fatal blow, which was only suspended till the general, who presided as judge, should give the signal. It was in this interval of anguish and expectation that Matilda came to take her last farewell of her husband and deliverer. Deploring her wretched situation and the cruelty of her fate, that had saved her from perishing by a premature death in the river Volturna, to be spectator of still greater calamities. The general, who was a young man, was struck with surprise at her beauty and pity at her distress, but with still stronger emotions when he heard her mention her former dangers. He was her son, the infant for whom she had encountered so much danger. He acknowledged her at once as his mother, and fell at her feet. The rest may be easily supposed. The captive was set free, and all the happiness that love, friendship, and duty could confer on each were united. In this manner I would attempt to amuse my daughter, but she listened with divided attention, for her own misfortunes engrossed all the pity she once had for those of another, and nothing gave her ease. In company she dreaded contempt, and in solitude she only found anxiety. Such was the colour of her wretchedness when we received certain information that Mr. Thornhill was going to be married to Miss Wilmot, for whom I always suspected he had a real passion, though he took every opportunity before me to express his contempt both of her person and fortune. This news only served to increase poor Olivia's affliction. Such a flagrant breach of fidelity was more than her courage could support. 
I was resolved, however, to get more certain information, and to defeat, if possible, the completion of his designs, by sending my son to old Mr. Wilmot's with instructions to know the truth of the report, and to deliver Miss Wilmot a letter intimating Mr. Thornhill's conduct in my family. My son went in pursuance of my directions, and in three days returned, assuring us of the truth of the account, but that he had found it impossible to deliver the letter, which he was therefore obliged to leave, as Miss Thornhill and Miss Wilmot were visiting round the country. They were to be married, he said, in a few days, having appeared together at church the Sunday before he was there, in great splendour, the bride attended by six young ladies, and he by as many gentlemen. Their approaching nuptials filled the whole country with rejoicing, and they usually rode out together in the grandest equipage that had been seen in the country for many years. All the friends of both families, he said, were there, particularly the squire's uncle, Sir William Thornhill, who bore so good a character. He added that nothing but mirth and feasting were going forward, that all the country praised the young bride's beauty and the bridegroom's fine person, and that they were immensely fond of each other concluding that he could not help thinking Mr. Thornhill one of the most happy men in the world. Why, let him if he can, returned I, but my son observe this bed of straw and unsheltering roof, those mouldering walls and humid floor, my wretched body thus disabled by fire, and my children weeping round me for bread. You have come home, my child, to all this, yet here, even here, you see a man that would not for a thousand worlds exchange situations. Oh, my children, if you could but learn to commune with your own hearts, and know what noble company you can make them, you would little regard the elegance and splendours of the worthless. Almost all men have been taught to call life a passage, and themselves the travellers. The similitude still may be improved when we observe that the good are joyful and serene, like travellers that are going towards home, the wicked, but by intervals happy, like travellers that are going into exile. My compassion for my poor daughter, overpowered by this new disaster, interrupted what I had farther to observe. I bade her mother support her, and after a short time she recovered. She appeared from that time more calm, and I imagined had gained a new degree of resolution. But appearances deceived me, for her tranquillity was the languor of overwrought resentment. A supply of provisions charitably sent us by my kind parishioners seemed to diffuse new cheerfulness among the rest of the family, nor was I displeased at seeing them once more sprightly and at ease. It would have been unjust to damp their satisfactions, merely to condole with resolute melancholy, or to burden them with a sadness they did not feel. Thus, once more, the tale went round, and the song was demanded, and cheerfulness condescended to hover round our little habitation. End of chapter The Vicar of Wakefield by Oliver Goldsmith, recorded for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton. Chapter 24 Fresh Calamities The next morning the sun rose with peculiar warmth for the season, so that we were agreed to breakfast together on the honeysuckle bank, where, while we sat, my youngest daughter, at my request, joined her voice to the concert on the trees about us. It was in this place my poor Olivia first met her seducer, and every object served to recall her sadness. 
But that melancholy which is excited by objects of pleasure, or inspired by sounds of harmony, soothes the heart instead of corroding it. Her mother, too, upon this occasion, felt a pleasing distress, and wept and loved her daughter as before. "'Do, my pretty Olivia,' cried she, "'let us have that little melancholy air your papa was so fond of. Your sister Sophie has already obliged us. Do, child, it will please your old father.' She complied in a manner so exquisitely pathetic as moved me. When lovely woman stoops to folly, and finds too late that men betray, what charm can soothe her melancholy, what art can wash her guilt away? The only art her guilt to cover, to hide her shame from every eye, to give repentance to her lover, and wring his bosom, is to die. As she was concluding the last stanza, to which an interruption in her voice from sorrow gave peculiar softness, the appearance of Mr. Thornhill's equipage at a distance alarmed us all, but particularly increased the uneasiness of my eldest daughter, who, desirous of shunning her betrayer, returned to the house with her sister. In a few minutes he was alighted from his chariot, and, making up to the place where I was still sitting, inquired after my health with his usual air of familiarity. "'Sir,' replied I, "'your present assurance only serves to aggravate the baseness of your character, and there was a time when I could have chastised your insolence for presuming thus to appear before me. But now you are safe, for age has cooled my passions, and my calling restrains them.' "'I vow, my dear sir,' returned he, "'I am amazed at all this.' nor can I understand what it means. I hope you don't think your daughter's late excursion with me had anything criminal in it. "'Go,' cried I, "'thou art a wretch, a poor, pitiful wretch, and every way a liar. But your meanness secures you from my anger. Yes, sir, I am descended from a family that would not have borne this. And so, thou vile thing, to gratify a momentary passion, thou hast made one poor creature wretched for life.' and polluted a family that had nothing but honour for their portion. If she or you, returned he, are resolved to be miserable, I cannot help it. But you may still be happy, and whatever opinion you may have formed of me, you shall ever find me ready to contribute to it. We can marry her to another in a short time, and, what is more, she may keep her lover beside, for I protest I shall ever continue to have a true regard for her. I found all my passions alarmed at this new degrading proposal. For though the mind may often be calm under great injuries, little villainy can at any time get within the soul and sting it into rage. Avoid my sight, thou reptile, cried I, nor continue to insult me with thy presence. Were my brave son at home, he would not suffer this, but I am old and disabled and every way undone. I find, cried he, you are bent upon obliging me to talk in a harsher manner than I intended. But, as I have shown you what may be hoped from my friendship, it may not be improper to represent what may be the consequences of my resentment. My attorney, to whom your late bond has been transferred, threatens hard, nor do I know how to prevent the course of justice, except by paying the money myself, which, as I have been at some expenses lately, previous to my intended marriage, is not so easy to be done. And then my steward talks of driving for the rent. It is certain he knows his duty, for I never trouble myself with affairs of that nature. Yet still I could wish to serve you, and even to have you and your daughter present at my marriage, which is shortly to be solemnised with Miss Wilmot. 
It is even the request of my charming Arabella herself, whom I hope you will not refuse. Mr. Thornhill, replied I, hear me once for all. As to your marriage with any but my daughter, that I never will consent to. And though your friendship could raise me to a throne, and your resentment sink me to the grave, yet would I despise both. Thou hast once woefully, irreparably deceived me. I reposed my heart upon thine honour, and have found its baseness. Never more, therefore, expect friendship from me. Go and possess what fortune has given thee, beauty, riches, health, and pleasure. Go and leave me to want, infamy, disease, and sorrow. Yet, humbled as I am, shall my heart still vindicate its dignity, and though thou hast my forgiveness, thou shalt ever have my contempt. If so, returned he, depend upon it, you shall feel the effects of this insolence, and we shall shortly see which is the fittest object of scorn, you or me, upon which he departed abruptly. My wife and son, who were present at this interview, seemed terrified with the apprehension. My daughter also, finding that he was gone, came out to be informed of the result of our conference, which, when known, alarmed them not less than the rest. But as to myself, I disregarded the utmost stretch of his malevolence. He had already struck the blow, and now I stood prepared to repel every new effort. Like one of those instruments used in the art of war, which, however thrown, still presents a point to receive the enemy. We soon, however, found that he had not threatened in vain, for the very next morning his steward came to demand my annual rent, which, by the train of accidents already related, I was unable to pay. The consequence of my incapacity was his driving my cattle that evening, and their being appraised and sold the next day for less than half their value. My wife and children now, therefore, entreated me to comply upon any terms rather than incur certain destruction. They even begged me to admit his visits once more, and used all their little eloquence to paint the calamities I was going to endure. The terrors of a prison in so rigorous a season as the present, with the danger that threatened my health from the late accident that happened by the fire. But I continued inflexible. Why, my treasures, cried I, why will you thus attempt to persuade me to the thing that is not right? My duty has taught me to forgive him, but my conscience will not permit me to approve. Would you have me applaud to the world that my heart must internally condemn? Would you have me tamely sit down and flatter our infamous betrayer, and, to avoid a prison, continually suffer the more galling bonds of mental confinement? No, never. If we are to be taken from this abode, only let us hold to the right, and wherever we are thrown, we can still retire to a charming apartment, when we can look around our own hearts with intrepidity and with pleasure. In this manner we spent that evening. Early the next morning, as the snow had fallen in great abundance in the night, my son was employed in clearing it away, and opening a passage before the door. He had not been thus engaged long, when he came running in with looks all pale, to tell us that two strangers, whom he knew to be officers of justice, were making towards the house. Just as he spoke, they came in, and, approaching the bed where I lay, after previously informing me of their employment and business, made me their prisoner, bidding me prepare to go with them to the county jail, which was eleven miles off. "'My friends,' said I, "'this is severe weather on which you have come to take me to a prison. 
and it is particularly unfortunate at this time, as one of my arms has lately been burned in a terrible manner, and it has thrown me into a slight fever, and I want clothes to cover me, and I am now too weak and old to walk far in such deep snow. But if it must be so... I then turned to my wife and children, and directed them to get together what few things were left us, and to prepare immediately for leaving this place. I entreated them to be expeditious, and desired my son to assist his elder sister, who, from a consciousness that she was the cause of all our calamities, was fallen, and had lost anguish in insensibility. I encouraged my wife, who, pale and trembling, clasped our affrighted little ones in her arms, that clung to her bosom in silence, dreading to look round at the strangers. In the meantime, my youngest daughter prepared for our departure, and as she received several hints to use dispatch, in about an hour we were ready to depart. End of chapter The Vicar of Wakefield by Oliver Goldsmith Read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton Chapter 25. No situation, however wretched it seems, but has some sort of comfort attending it. We set forward from this peaceful neighbourhood, and walked on slowly. My eldest daughter, being enfeebled by a slow fever which had begun for some days to undermine her constitution, one of the officers who had an horse kindly took her behind him, for even these men cannot entirely divest themselves of humanity. My son led one of the little ones by the hand, and my wife the other, while I leaned upon my youngest girl, whose tears fell not for her own, but my distresses. We were now got from my late dwelling about two miles, when we saw a crowd running and shouting behind us, consisting of about fifty of my poorest parishioners. These, with dreadful imprecations, soon seized upon the two officers of justice and swearing they would never see their minister go to jail while they had a drop of blood to shed in his defence, were going to use them with great severity. The consequence might have been fatal had I not immediately interposed, and with some difficulty rescued the officers from the hands of the enraged multitude. My children, who looked upon my delivery now as certain, appeared transported with joy, and were incapable of containing their raptures but they were soon undeceived upon hearing me address the poor, deluded people who came, as they imagined, to do me service. "'What, my friends,' cried I, "'and is this the way you love me? Is this the manner you obey the instructions I have given you from the pulpit, thus to fly in the face of justice, and bring down ruin on yourselves and me? Which is your ringleader? Show me the man that has thus seduced you. As sure as he lives, he shall feel my resentment.' Alas, my dear deluded flock, return back to the duty you owe to God, to your country, and to me. I shall yet perhaps one day see you in greater felicity here, and contribute to make your lives more happy. But let it at least be my comfort when I pen my fold for immortality, that no one here shall be wanting. They now seemed all repentance, and, melting into tears, came one after the other to bid me farewell. I shook each tenderly by the hand, and, leaving them my blessing, proceeded forward without meeting any further interruption. Some hours before night we reached the town, or rather village, for it consisted but of a few mean houses. Having lost all its former opulence, and retaining no marks of its ancient superiority but the jail, 
Upon entering, we put up at an inn, where we had such refreshments as could most readily be procured, and I supped with my family with my usual cheerfulness. After seeing them properly accommodated for that night, I next attended the sheriff's officers to the prison, which had formerly been built for the purposes of war, and consisted of one large apartment strongly grated, and paved with stone, common to both felons and debtors at certain hours in the four-and-twenty. Besides this, every prisoner had a separate cell, where he was locked in for the night. I expected upon my entrance to find nothing but lamentations and various sounds of misery, but it was very different. The prisoners seemed all employed in one common design, that of forgetting thought in merriment or clamour. I was apprised of the usual perquisite required upon these occasions, and immediately complied with the demand, though the little money I had was very near being all exhausted. This was immediately sent away for liquor, and the whole prison soon was filled with riot, laughter, and profaneness. How, cried I to myself, shall men so very wicked be cheerful, and shall I be melancholy? I feel only the same confinement with them, and I think I have more reason to be happy. With such reflections I laboured to become cheerful. But cheerfulness was never yet produced by effort, which is itself painful. As I was sitting therefore in a corner of the jail, in a pensive posture, one of my fellow prisoners came up, and, sitting by me, entered into conversation. It was my constant rule in life never to avoid the conversation of any man who seemed to desire it, for, if good, I might profit by his instruction. If bad, he might be assisted by mine. I found this to be a knowing man of strong, unlettered sense, but a thorough knowledge of the world, as it is called, or, more properly speaking, of human nature on the wrong side. He asked me if I had taken care to provide myself with a bed, which was a circumstance I had never once attended to. "'That's unfortunate,' cried he, "'as you're allowed here nothing but straw, and your apartment is very large and cold. However, you seem to be something of a gentleman, and, as I have been one myself in my time, part of my bedclothes are heartily at your service.' I thanked him, professing my surprise at finding such humanity in a jail in misfortunes, adding, to let him see that I was a scholar, that the sage ancient seemed to understand the value of company in affliction, when he said, ton cosmon aere eidos ton eterion. And in fact, continued I, what is the world if it affords only solitude? You talk of the world, sir, returned my fellow prisoner. The world is in its dotage, and yet the cosmogony, or creation of the world, has puzzled the philosophers of every age. What a medley of opinions have they not broached upon the creation of the world? Sankanathon, Manitho, Barosus, and Asilius Lucanus have all attempted it in vain. The latter had these words, Anarchon Arachae Atelutaion Topan, which implies, I ask pardon, sir, cried I, for interrupting so much learning, but I think I have heard all this before. Have I not had the pleasure of once seeing you at Wellbridge Fair? and is not your name Ephraim Jenkinson? At this demand he only sighed. I suppose you must recollect, resumed I, one Dr. Primrose, from whom you bought a horse? He now at once recollected me, for the gloominess of the place and the approaching night had prevented his distinguishing my features before. Yes, sir, returned Mr. Jenkinson, I remember you perfectly well. I bought an horse, but forgot to pay for him. 
Your neighbour Flanborough is the only prosecutor I am any way afraid of at the next assizes, for he intends to swear positively against me as a coiner. I am heartily sorry, sir, I ever deceived you, or indeed any man, for you see, continued he, showing his shackles, what my tricks have brought me to. Well, sir, replied I, your kindness in offering me assistance when you could expect no return shall be repaid with my endeavours to soften or totally suppress Mr. Flamborough's evidence, and I will send my son to him for that purpose the first opportunity. Nor do I in the least doubt but he will comply with my request, and, as to my evidence, you need be under no uneasiness about that. Well, sir, cried he, all the return I can make shall be yours. You shall have more than half my bedclothes to-night, and I'll take care to stand your friend in the prison, where I think I have some influence. I thanked him, and could not avoid being surprised at the present youthful change in his aspect, for at the time I had seen him before he appeared at least sixty. Sir, answered he, you are little acquainted with the world. I had at that time false hair, and have learnt the art of counterfeiting every age from seventeen to seventy. Ah, sir, had I but bestowed half the pains in learning a trade that I have in learning to be a scoundrel, I might have been a rich man at this day. But, rogue as I am, still I may be your friend, and that, perhaps, when you least expect it. We were now prevented from further conversation by the arrival of the jailer's servants, who came to call over the prisoners' names and lock up for the night. A fellow, also with a bundle of straw for my bed, attended, who led me along a dark, narrow passage into a room paved like the common prison, and in one corner of this I spread my bed and the clothes given me by my fellow prisoner, which done, my conductor, who was civil enough, bade me a good night. After my usual meditations, and having praised my heavenly corrector, I laid myself down and slept with the utmost tranquillity till morning. End of chapter The Vicar of Wakefield by Oliver Goldsmith Read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton Chapter 26 A Reformation in the Jail to make laws complete, they should reward as well as punish. The next morning early I was awakened by my family, whom I found in tears at my bedside. The gloomy strength of everything about us, it seems, had daunted them. I gently rebuked their sorrow, assuring them that I had never slept with greater tranquillity, and next inquired after my eldest daughter, who was not among them. They informed me that yesterday's uneasiness and fatigue had increased her fever, and it was judged proper to leave her behind. My next care was to send my son to procure a room or two to lodge the family in, as near the prison as conveniently could be found. He obeyed, but could only find one apartment which he has hired at small expense for his mother and sisters, the jailer with humanity consenting to let him and his two little brothers lie in prison with me. A bed was therefore prepared for them in a corner of the room, which I thought answered very conveniently. I was willing, however, previously to know whether my little children chose to lie in a place which seemed to fright them upon entrance. Well, cried I, my good boys, how do you like your bed? I hope you are not afraid to lie in this room, dark as it appears. No, papa, says Dick, I am not afraid to lie anywhere where you are. And I, says Bill, who was yet but four years old, love every place best that my papa is in. 
After this I allotted to each of the family what they were to do. My daughter was particularly directed to watch her declining sister's health. My wife was to attend me, my little boys were to read to me, and as for you, my son, continued I, it is by the labour of your hands we must all hope to be supported. Your wages as a day labourer will be full sufficient with proper frugality to maintain us all and comfortably too. Thou art now sixteen years old and hast strength, and it was given thee, my son, for very useful purposes, for it must save from famine your helpless parents and family. Prepare then this evening to look out for work against to-morrow, and bring home every night what money you earn for our support. Having thus instructed him and settled the rest, I walked down to the common prison, where I could enjoy more air and room. But I was not long there, when the execrations, lewdness and brutality that invaded me on every side drove me back to my apartment again. Here I sat for some time, pondering upon the strange infatuation of wretches, who, finding all mankind in open arms against them, were labouring to make themselves a future and a tremendous enemy. Their insensibility excited my highest compassion, and blotted my own uneasiness from my mind. It even appeared a duty incumbent upon me to attempt to reclaim them. I resolved, therefore, once more to return, and, in spite of their contempt, to give them my advice and conquer them by perseverance. Going therefore among them again, I informed Mr. Jenkinson of my design, at which he laughed heartily, but communicated it to the rest. The proposal was received with the greatest good humour, as it promised to afford a new fund of entertainment to persons who had now no other source for mirth but what could be derived from ridicule or debauchery. I therefore read them a portion of the service with a loud, unaffected voice, and found my audience perfectly merry upon the occasion. Lewd whispers, groans of contrition burlesqued, winking and coughing alternately excited laughter. However, I continued with my natural solemnity to read on, sensible that what I did might amend some, but could itself receive no contamination from any. After reading, I entered upon my exhortation, which was rather calculated at first to amuse them than to reprove. I previously observed that no other motive but their welfare could induce me to this, that I was their fellow-prisoner, and now got nothing by preaching. I was sorry, I said, to hear them so very profane, because they got nothing by it, but might lose a great deal. For be assured, my friends, cried I, for you are my friends, however the world may disclaim your friendship, though you swore twelve thousand oaths in a day, it would not put one penny in your purse. Then what signifies calling every moment upon the devil, and courting his friendship, since you find how scurvily he uses you? He has given you nothing here, you find, but a mouthful of oaths and an empty belly, and by the best accounts I have of him, he will give you nothing that's good hereafter. If used ill in our dealings with one man, we naturally go elsewhere. Were it not worth your while, then, just to try how you may like the usage of another master, who gives you fair promises at least to come to him? Surely, my friends, of all stupidity in the world, his must be the greatest, who, after robbing a house, runs to the thief-takers for protection. And yet, how are you more wise? You are all seeking comfort from one that has already betrayed you, applying to a more malicious being than any thief-taker of them all. For they only decoy, and then hang you. But he decoys, and hangs, and, what is worst of all, will not let you loose after the hangman has done. 
When I had concluded, I received the compliments of my audience, some of whom came and shook me by the hand, swearing that I was a very honest fellow, and that they desired my further acquaintance. I therefore promised to repeat my lecture next day, and actually conceived some hopes of making a reformation here. For it had ever been my opinion that no man was past the hour of amendment, every heart lying open to the shafts of reproof, if the archer could but take a proper aim. When I had thus satisfied my mind, I went back to my apartment, where my wife had prepared a frugal meal, while Mr. Jenkinson begged leave to add his dinner to ours, and partake of the pleasure, as he was kind enough to express it, of my conversation. He had not yet seen my family, for as they came to my apartment by a door in the narrow passage already described, by this means they avoided the common prison. Jenkinson, at the first interview, therefore, seemed not a little struck with the beauty of my youngest daughter, which her pensive air contributed to heighten, and my little ones did not pass unnoticed. Alas, doctor, cried he, these children are too handsome and too good for such a place as this. Why, Mr. Jenkinson, replied I, thank heaven my children are pretty tolerable in morals, and if they be good it matters little for the rest. I fancy, sir, returned my fellow prisoner, that it must give you great comfort to have this little family about you. A comfort, Mr. Jenkinson, replied I, yes, it is indeed a comfort, and I would not be without them for all the world, for they can make a dungeon seem a palace. There is but one way in this life of wounding my happiness, and that is by injuring them. I am afraid, then, sir, cried he, that I am in some measure culpable, for I think I see here, looking at my son Moses, one that I have injured, and by whom I wish to be forgiven. My son immediately recollected his voice and features, though he had before seen him in disguise, and, taking him by the hand with a smile, forgave him. Yet, continued he, I can't help wondering at what you could see in my face to think me a proper mark for deception. My dear sir, returned the other, it was not your face, but your white stockings and the black ribbons in your hair that allured me. But no disparagement to your parts, I have deceived wiser men than you in my time. And yet, with all my tricks, the blockheads have been too many for me at last. I suppose, cried my son, that the narrative of such a life as yours must be extremely instructive and amusing. Not much of either, returned Mr. Jenkinson. Those relations which describe the tricks and vices only of mankind, by increasing our suspicion in life, retard our success. The traveller that distrusts every person he meets, and turns back upon the appearance of every man that looks like a robber, seldom arrives in time at his journey's end. Indeed, I think from my own experience that the knowing one is the silliest fellow under the sun. I was thought cunning from my very childhood, when, but seven years old, the ladies would say that I was a perfect little man. At fourteen, I knew the world, cocked my hat, and loved the ladies. At twenty, though I was perfectly honest, yet every one thought me so cunning that not one would trust me. Thus I was at last obliged to turn sharper in my own defence, and have lived ever since, my head throbbing with schemes to deceive, and my heart palpitating with fears of detection. I used often to laugh at your honest simple neighbour Flamborough, and one way or another generally cheated him once a year. Yet still the honest man went forward without suspicion, and grew rich, while I still continued tricksy and cunning, and was poor without the consolation of being honest. However, continued he, let me know your case, 
and what has brought you here. Perhaps, though I have no skill to avoid a jail myself, I may extricate my friends. In compliance with his curiosity, I informed him of the whole train of accidents and follies that had plunged me into my present troubles, and my utter inability to get free. After hearing my story, and pausing some minutes, he slapped his forehead as if he had hit upon something material, and took his leave, saying he would try what could be done. End of chapter The Vicar of Wakefield by Oliver Goldsmith Read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton Chapter 27 The Same Subject Continued The next morning I communicated to my wife and children the scheme I had planned of reforming the prisoners, which they received with universal disapprobation, alleging the impossibility and impropriety of it, adding that my endeavours would no way contribute to their amendment, but might probably disgrace my calling. "'Excuse me,' returned I, "'these people, however fallen, are still men, and that is a very good title to my affections. Good counsel, rejected, returns to enrich the giver's bosom. And though the instruction I communicate may not mend them, yet it will assuredly mend myself. If these wretches, my children, were princes, there would be thousands ready to offer their ministry. But, in my opinion, the heart that is buried in a dungeon is as precious as that seated upon a throne.' Yes, my treasures, if I can mend them, I will. Perhaps they will not all despise me. Perhaps I may catch up even one from the gulf, and that will be great gain. For is there upon earth a gem so precious as the human soul? Thus saying, I left them, and descended to the common prison, where I found the prisoners very merry, expecting my arrival, and each prepared with some jail trick to play upon the doctor. Thus, as I was going to begin, one turned my wig awry, as if by accident, and then asked my pardon. A second, who stood at some distance, had a knack of spitting through his teeth, which fell in showers upon my book. A third would cry, Amen, in such an affected tone as gave the rest great delight. A fourth had slyly picked my pocket of my spectacles. But there was one whose trick gave more universal pleasure than all the rest. For observing the manner in which I had disposed my books on the table before me, he very dexterously displaced one of them, and put an obscene jest-book of his own in the place. However, I took no notice of all that this mischievous group of little beings could do, but went on, perfectly sensible that what was ridiculous in my attempt would excite mirth only the first or second time, while what was serious would be permanent. My design succeeded, and in less than six days, some were penitent, and all attentive. It was now that I applauded my perseverance and address at thus giving sensibility to wretches divested of every moral feeling, and now began to think of doing them temporal services also, by rendering their situation somewhat more comfortable. Their time had hitherto been divided between famine and excess, tumultuous riot and bitter repining. Their only employment was quarrelling among each other, playing at cribbage, and cutting tobacco-stoppers. From this last mode of idle industry I took the hint of settings such as chose to work at cutting pegs for tobacconists and shoemakers, the proper wood being bought by a general subscription, and when manufactured sold by my appointment, so that each earns something every day, a trifle indeed, but sufficient to maintain him. 
I did not stop here, but instituted fines for the punishment of immorality and rewards for peculiar industry. Thus, in less than a fortnight, I had formed them into something social and humane, and had the pleasure of regarding myself as a legislator who had brought men from their native ferocity into friendship and obedience. And it were highly to be wished that legislative power would thus direct the law rather to reformation than severity that it would seem convinced that the work of eradicating crimes is not by making punishments familiar, but formidable. Then, instead of our present prisons, which find or make men guilty, which enclose wretches for the commission of one crime, and return them, if returned alive, fitted for the perpetration of thousands, we should see, as in other parts of Europe, places of penitence and solitude, where the accused might be attended by some such as could give them repentance if guilty, or new motives to virtue, if innocent. And this, but not the increasing punishments, is the way to mend a state. Nor can I avoid even questioning the validity of that right which social combinations have assumed, of capitally punishing offences of a slight nature. In cases of murder their right is obvious, as it is the duty of all of us, from the law of self-defence, to cut off that man who has shown a disregard for the life of another, Against such all nature arises in arms, but it is not so against him who steals my property. Natural law gives me no right to take away his life, as by that the horse he steals is as much his property as mine. If then I have any right, it must be from a compact made between us, that he who deprives the other of his horse shall die. But this is a false compact, because no man has a right to barter his life, no more than to take it away, as it is not his own. And beside, the compact is inadequate, and would be set aside even in a court of modern equity, as there is great penalty for a very trifling convenience, since it is far better that two men should live than that one man should die. But a compact that is false between two men is equally so between an hundred or an hundred thousand. For as ten millions of circles can never make a square, so the united voice of myriads cannot lend the smallest foundation to falsehood. It is thus that reason speaks, and untutored nature says the same thing. Savages that are directed by natural law alone are very tender of the lives of each other. They seldom shed blood but to retaliate former cruelty. Our Saxon ancestors, fierce as they were in war, had but few executions in times of peace. And in all commencing governments that have the print of nature still strong upon them, scarce any crime is held capital. It is among the citizens of a refined community that penal laws, which are in the hands of the rich, are laid upon the poor. Government, while it grows older, seems to acquire the moroseness of age, and as if our property were become dearer in proportion as it increased, as if the more enormous our wealth, the more extensive our fears, all our possessions are paled up with new edicts every day, and hung round with gibbets to scare every invader. I cannot tell whether it is from the number of our penal laws or the licentiousness of our people that this country should show more convicts in a year than half the dominions of Europe united. Perhaps it is owing to both, for they mutually produce each other. When, by indiscriminate penal laws, a nation beholds the same punishment affixed to dissimilar degrees of guilt, from perceiving no distinction in the penalty, the people are led to lose all sense of distinction in the crime and this distinction is the bulwark of all morality. 
Thus the multitude of laws produce new vices, and new vices call for fresh restraints. It were to be wished, then, that power, instead of contriving new laws to punish vice, instead of drawing hard the cards of society till a convulsion came to burst them, instead of cutting away wretches as useless before we have tried their utility, instead of converting correction into vengeance, it were to be wished that we tried the restrictive arts of government, and made law the protector, but not the tyrant of the people. We should then find that creatures whose souls are held as dross only wanted the hand of a refiner. We should then find that wretches, now struck up for long tortures, lest luxury should feel a monetary pang, might, if properly treated, serve to sinew the state in times of danger. That, as their faces are like ours, their hearts are so too, that few minds are so base, as that perseverance cannot amend. That a man may see his last crime without dying for it, and that very little blood will serve to cement our security. End of chapter.